Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey there, Tech Stuff listeners. This is Jonathan Strickland, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something cool going on at How Stuff Works right now. I know all of you guys are really creative, and you love technology. Well, now you can show us what you're made of, because Toyota is sponsoring a new photo upload widget over at HowStuffWorks.com. You can share your gadget ideas, modifications, hacks, some great tech ideas. Show us what you're made of. Let us know how creative you are. You can go to www.howstuffworks.com. HowStuffWorks.com slash upgrade your tech and upload those photos now. We want to see what you got. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as is typical, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there. Right. So, Chris, one of the big issues facing the world today is access to clean, drinkable water. That's true. And so we wanted to talk to someone who's an expert in a particular form of uh, processing water to make something that isn't drinkable into drinkable water. And we have with us from GE, Eric Hansen. Eric, welcome to the to the podcast. Thanks very much. We're excited to have you here. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about desalination, which is a process where we're removing things like salt and other minerals from water so that you have... Uh, clean drinking water as an as an uh, a byproduct, really. Mm-hmm. The other one being the the sol the solute. So uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the process that you guys use over at GE, the things that you're looking into, and um, how that has changed over the years. So to really start off, what what are the greatest benefits of desalination? Um, it's a, a great question. Uh, you know. The world today uh, faces, you know, ever-increasing challenges and stresses on water supplies. Uh, but, you know, the good news behind that is the, the Earth's surface is 70% water. Uh, so even though less than 1% of that is accessible as fresh water today, uh, the rest of it is, is seawater, and we do have the technologies today to turn that into usable water. So, in fact, those technologies have been around for a uh, a really long time, uh, you know, even hundreds of years ago, people would boil water, capture the, the steam from that water, and use the, the condensation from that, that steam uh, as purified water. So the concepts of, of desalinating water using heat or thermal technologies, uh, those, those aren't new concepts. They've been around for a while. Uh, Desalination has been going on for a long time, and even up through the most of the 90s, uh, thermal technologies were still very prevalent, uh, albeit a little bit more advanced than just simply boiling water. Uh, but the concepts were still the same, heating up the water, capturing the, uh, the steam, and condensing it. Sure. So in, the, uh, in the 90s, uh, different technologies uh, started being applied. Uh, instead of heating up the water and boiling it, uh, what we started doing was applying membranes uh, special kinds of, of uh, very advanced filters, uh, these membranes are able to remove the salts from the water uh, with much less energy. Uh, it takes a lot of, of energy to boil water. So using membrane technologies, we've been able to reduce the amount of energy it takes to remove the salt from water. And over the last 20 years, uh, there have been just a, a lot of advances in that, in that field. 
uh, which I'm sure we'll go into a little bit more uh, uh, in our conversation. Sure. Mm-hmm. To make uh, the cost of desalinating water come down, uh, you know, every year. Right. And so you're talking about these these semi-permeable membranes. Uh, essentially, we're looking at a process of reverse osmosis, really, um, forcing the using pressure essentially to force uh, water that has various minerals and salt in it through this membrane. The membrane separates out the uh, the minerals, the salts, and the water passes through. Normally, when you have a membrane between a, a, a solute and a solvent, the solvent is going to pass through the membrane until there's a an equilibrium there, and osmosis pressure is osmotic pressure is built up. Uh, so in this case, we're actually applying energy on one side so that we get water on one end of the membrane and everything else is on the other. Is that that sort of a bird's eye view of what that technology is all about? Yeah, you described it uh, very well. You know, one of the the biggest difference between membrane filtration and the the types of filtration that most people are familiar with is when most people think of a filter, they imagine a a barrier of some kind with one stream of water flowing into it, Mm -hmm. things being removed by that barrier, and then one stream of water flowing out the other side. And then after a while, you have to do something to get all the stuff you've removed off that barrier. Mm -hmm. So membrane technology doesn't exactly work that way. You still have a barrier, and it's the membrane. But in membrane technology, the the feed stream is actually flowing across the membrane. So you have one stream in, but then you're applying pressure. So some water is making it through the membrane. That's the purified water without much salt in it. Uh, and all the, salt, all the salt is staying on the other side of the membrane. So in membrane technology, instead of one stream in and one stream out, you actually have one stream in but two streams out, oh. the purified stream and uh, the saltier stream. So that saltier stream, the brine, I know that that has caused some problems in the past simply because brine, you know, what do you do with that after you've gone through the desalination process? Now, brine, because it has this concentrated amount of salts and minerals in it, it's actually denser than seawater. So if you were to simply uh, dump that brine into the sea, then it would it would sink to the bottom of the sea floor, where it could potentially cause damage depending upon the uh, environment that you're in. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the approaches to to take care of that problem? I know there's some about uh, mixing the brine in with other water that's going to be running into the sea, so it it uh, dilutes it. Sure. So. I- I mean, if you step back and, and look at the desalination process, you know, from a, from 30,000 feet, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it can simply be considered really part of the, the normal water cycle, the hydrological cycle. So, yes, there's water with more salt going back into the ocean, but the water that's purified and is then used, uh, ultimately that goes back into the ocean as well, whether it comes through, you know, municipal wastewater and sanitary sewers and is treated you know, in many other ways, you know, that water all does essentially return to the the hydrological cycle at some point. So, you know, from a high level, the mass balance is fine. The oceans aren't going to get saltier because of this, Mm -hmm. because we are returning the purified water back to the oceans at some point as well. So really the the more immediate concern is just that very point at which you're introducing the, the brine back into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And depending on the characteristics of the, the seabed and what's living in that area, uh, sometimes there are special considerations that are taken. Uh, 
Uh, and, you know, there are many different ways you can return the brine back into the ocean. You can just have a, a pipe that puts it right into the ocean. You can create a, an elaborate uh, grid of pipes underneath the seabed to, uh, to blend it a little bit better. Uh, there's a number of different methods, and uh, even though desalination may seem like a, a niche to some people, there are actually quite a few specialties within it. And, uh, you know, really thinking through how the brine is going back into the ocean and how it's going to affect marine life is, uh, is uh, quite a science in itself. But, uh, you know, there's been a, a ton of progress on that, really, in just the last 10 years. And, you know, I think in nearly all cases, we're now able to come up with with special schemes and, and the right technology to, to blend it without harming marine life. Fantastic. Uh, well, moving on to an, another question, what what's the greatest barrier to adoption of desalination? I mean, why? Uh, what's keeping this technology from being more widespread and used in more areas of the world? You know, I, I think there are uh, – you know, you could probably classify it into two different barriers. One, one of them is, uh, is is more perception. Uh, you know, there are some areas where the public still isn't really that on board with it yet, just for you know things they've read in the news and and their own ideas about it. Other parts of the world are doing this uh, often. Uh, you know, in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia, you find diesel plants all over the place. Uh, they have largely solved all the environmental issues that people should be worried about, um, you know, but some people are slower to adapt than others, and, and it takes a while to, to come to terms with with, uh, with some of that mentally. Um, so that, you know, that's a harder problem to solve. The easier problems to solve really are, are the energy problems, because when you do desalination, it isn't the cheapest way to get water. If there's other uh, supplies of water available to you, uh, that don't have so much salt in them, they're most likely going to be less expensive than desalination. So today people are doing desalination really only in areas where they don't have a lot of other alternatives, uh, where they're in a water-scarce area and they simply need to do it. So driving down the energy cost uh, is really the, the primary goal in desalination, and it has been for the last 20 years. And there have been a lot of different improvements uh, over the last really 15 years that have really made progress in driving that down, uh, and they're in a number of different areas. Uh, obviously, the amount of, of energy that you need to drive the salt out of the water uh, is a big deal, uh, and you can lower that through advances in the membrane chemistry, so actually improving the membranes. Uh, you can do it through advances in the efficiencies of pumps, uh, and you can also do it through advances in energy recovery devices. So there's a you know a number of different areas that, that people are working on, and then in addition to that, you know simply the operation of these plants, you know it, it requires uh, a fair amount of, of of manpower just to keep these things running. So we've also been making a lot of uh, improvements and innovations in the pretreatment to these plants. So as as the the pretreatment to the water gets better, uh, there are lower operating costs as well. So lots of different levers to to pull in order to to lower the operating costs. You know, I was wondering a little bit about the equipment itself. Uh, I mean, the process itself seems pretty, uh, pretty straightforward, but, um, you know, is the, is the equipment itself large? Does it take up a lot of space or, or does it require a lot of high pressure to, to make it work? Yeah, the, two different things. In terms of size, uh, it doesn't take up really 
any more space than a, a traditional water treatment plant for the same capacity would. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the big difference is pressure. Uh, the, the, the more salt that you have dissolved in any, in any given amount of water, the higher the osmotic pressure of that water. Uh, something Jonathan referred to in his earlier explanation. Right. So the more salt, the higher the osmotic pressure, the more pressure you need to apply to the water to drive the salt out of it. Uh, so take, for example, the, the Middle East. Uh, in the Gulf in the Middle East, that's really some of the saltiest water in the world. Uh, so on, on desal plants there, uh, we're running them as, as high as, as eight or 8, 850 uh, PSI which is pretty high pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in other parts of, of the world, uh, like, say, the Caribbean, the water is a, a little less salty, still absolutely seawater, but it's not quite as saline as, as the Middle East. So there you, because it has slightly less salt, you can use slightly less, less pressure. Now, are these plants often uh, sort of piggybacked on to other plants like power generation? I was Wondering if there was a lot of uh, cogeneration going on with desalination plants. Yeah, that's a, a great question, uh, and this is actually one of the, the reasons that GE is is uh, you know so active in this market. Uh, you know, there's uh, just an inex- uh, there's a there's a obvious tie between energy and water. So to produce energy, you know, power plants need water to produce energy. In fact, almost 10% of all global water withdrawals. Uh, go to the production of water. So that's a, a pretty significant amount. Uh, and then the reverse of that is to desalinate water. You need energy to do it. So power plants and desal plants are, are, are very linked. Uh, in the past, when the, the technologies were more thermal-based, uh, that was another advantage of tying the plants together because many uh, power plants, especially power plants in the past, had a lot of waste heat, so they could use some of that heat uh, for the thermal desalination. Power plants today are much more efficient, so there isn't so much waste heat coming from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the membrane technologies come to a point where really that's the, the prevalent technology for desalination. So we're not seeing them tied together as much anymore because of waste heat from the power plant, uh, but we are seeing them tied together simply because the power plant needs water uh, and the desal plant needs power. Excellent. So what is GE doing to make desalination more feasible to address water scarcity issues? So we're, we're working in a number of different areas. Uh, we've worked a lot in the past on the membranes, and uh, you know, there are really some very high-quality membranes now used in desalination. Uh, they're not at entitlement yet. There are still some gains to be made there, um, but they're, they're getting close. The membranes are, are very efficient today. Um, pretreatment is very important. So when, when we talk about membranes and how they take the salt out of water, they're great at taking the salt out of water, but they aren't great at taking suspended solids out of water. Mm. So you don't want to put salt uh, or sticks or stones or anything like that into a membrane. That's bad for it. So pretty much every membrane plant in the world has some kind of pretreatment in front of it to take the suspended solids out before it gets to the membrane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and GE's been leading in this area as well. We have some terrific advanced pre-filtration, uh, another type of membrane called an ultrafiltration membrane, uh, and it, it provides really superior uh, suspended solids removal so that the water that gets to the, the reverse osmosis membranes uh, is as clean as it can be. It's still salty, but it's had everything else removed, and that makes the life of those membranes uh, last a lot longer. Uh, 
which in turn lowers the, the overall cost of ownership. Um, then the other piece is the pumping side. Uh, there are a lot of different kinds of pumps in the marketplace. Uh, the most efficient types of pumps are positive displacement pumps. Uh, if you think of pumping water, you can imagine you have a fixed, geog fixed geometry of water. The most efficient way to raise the pressure of it is just to push on it. Um, and that works today in, in relatively small sizes, but as plants get larger and larger, uh, there aren't so many um, good positive displacement pumps. So instead what people use are centrifugal pumps. So that's more like spinning the water. Mm -hmm. The water that gets thrown to the outside has a, a higher pressure. So, you know, we've been working, uh, developing a, a new pump, which is a positive displacement style pump, but it's much larger than other positive displacement style pumps on the marketplace. Uh, that's a pretty new product for us, but we expect that within the next year we're going to start seeing more of more of that pump out in D-cell plants, uh, and that's going to knock uh, as much as another 10% uh, of the energy uh, off. So uh, that when we get that uh, fully commercialized and out in the marketplace, it's going to lower the uh, electrical cost by about 10% more, which is really significant uh, when you're talking about uh, you know, the cost of desalination. Sure. Uh, so, so that sort of leads into what do you see as the future of desalination? Where do you see us going in another few years, like another decade or two decades? Yeah, that's a great question and a hard question because <laughs> there are many, uh, many technologies out there today. Uh, you know, I, I think most people in the industry, uh, myself included, really see uh, reverse osmosis as continuing to be the, the most prevalent technology. Uh, for at least the next five or seven or ten years. Um, it's certainly possible that some other technologies could uh, could come along. And, you know, honestly, if there are other technologies that will dramatically lower the cost of desalination, that would be great for the planet. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think over the next five or seven years, what we're going to see uh, is people figuring out how to link desal plants more to uh, other renewables. So already we're starting to see people thinking about how do you combine a desal plant with wind turbines and a wind farm? Or how do you combine uh, a desal plant with uh, a solar farm? You know, it turns out that a lot of places in the world that need desalination, places that are water scarce, uh, are also places that have quite a bit of sun. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there are some nice natural links between, uh, you know, combining solar with desal in some ways. Uh, there's also challenges because, uh, you know, in addition to having a lot of sun, you know, some of these places also have a lot of sand and it's dusty and and dust and solar don't don't always pair so well. The dust coats the panels and they become less efficient. But, you know, now we're talking about some pretty um, discrete challenges. You know, people are doing this now. They're learning. They're getting better at it. There's not a lot of, of solar plus D-cell or wind plus D-cell out there today. But I think in the next five to ten years, we're probably going to start to see a lot more of that. Yeah, it's really exciting. And to give our listeners an idea of the impact that these sort of technologies have made so far, uh, it wasn't that long ago that the estimated population that could not get access to clean water was around 20%. But according to the World Health Organization, they had a, a 2012 report which took numbers from 2010 and took a look at that. Uh, they said that it's, it's still a, a massive problem. Still 780 million people lack access to safe drinking water, according to this report. 
and that's a, a you know that's a sobering number but uh, the silver lining here is that that's that's half of what it was before. So that the numbers of people who are getting access to safe drinking water, they're on the rise, which, I mean, that's obviously the way we want to see this trend go. So it's exciting to see this sort of technology combined with the efforts of other uh, organizations out there dedicated to making sure that, that people across the world get access to this water. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the statistics that, that I often hear is that today it's one in every six people today doesn't have access to clean water, which is, you know, as you said, really a, a sobering number. Um, you know, I, I think there's an inter- interesting combination here where you read a lot about this today. You know, 10 years ago, you didn't generally see water articles in mainstream media. And today, you know, every week you're going to see an article in mainstream media talking about water scarcity. And, you know, it is a serious problem and it, it is alarming. But the, the plus side of this publicity is that there are more entrepreneurs, more large companies like GE, uh, just more people out there starting to think about what are some possible solutions. Uh, and there's lots of them. You know, desalination is a a great example of ways that we can solve water scarcity. Uh, water reuse is another great example of ways that we can solve water scarcity. You know, water reuse is just taking water that's already been used for one purpose uh, and treating it and cleaning it up and finding a you know a way to use it for another purpose. So, you know, I, I think all the current press that we hear about water scarcity uh, is actually helping to, to feed a pipeline of, of new innovations and new ideas that will actually help solve the problem in the long run. Fantastic. Eric, uh, that, that's a great look at the desalination process and what GE is doing to, to really push this technology forward. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. It's been a really uh, educational experience for me. And, um, uh, especially yeah, as, yeah. As, a, as, a, as liberal arts majors, whose, <laughs> <laughs> whose background in engineering is saying, wow, that's cool. Uh, it's really great to get people like you on our show to talk about this and, and give our listeners this, uh, this sort of, uh, uh, look. Is there anything else you would like to say before we wrap up? Well, I, you know, Jonathan, Chris, I'd just like to say thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, at GE, we're doing a lot of, of really interesting and innovative things to, to solve the very problems that we were just talking about for the last half hour. Uh, you know, one of the great things about being in this kind of business is when you come up with innovations, you can actually see that they're helping people. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a rewarding business to be in. Uh, GE's very committed to it. Uh, we're investing a lot in solving problems today and in the future. And, and uh, you know, I, I love talking about it, and, and I'm really excited about where this can all go over the next couple of years. Yeah, thank you so Thanks much. Yeah, thank you, Eric. And and uh, we're always glad to have people who advocate that sort of mindset, too, to really get people interested in science, technology, engineering. These are areas that are uh, – they're, they're leading the way to the future of what our world is going to be. And, uh, you know, if we have students out there listening, uh, feel free to let us know. Tell us what you are interested in. Let us know what, what areas we should cover in our future podcasts. You can let us know by sending us an email. That address is techstuffatdiscovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. You can find our handle at both of those locations. It's techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. See, guys, I told you we'd talk to you again really soon. That really soon is right now. I'm just reminding you that we have our photo upload widget live on the site at www.howstuffworks.com slash upgrade your tech. Toyota's giving us the chance to let you share your creativity. So send us those pictures of your modifications, your tech ideas, those gadgets that you've created, all those hacks. If you're steampunking everything in sight, put on your goggles and show that to us. We can't wait to see them. Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you?